James chapter 3 this morning, please. James chapter 3. If you're visiting with us today, we're right in the middle of a series on the book of James, a series that we've entitled Faith That Works. And so we're going to continue with that today. James chapter 3. And we'll begin reading verse number 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly people full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Father God, thank you for this, your word. I pray today for your wisdom and guidance. I pray for the filling of the Spirit of God, that Lord, you will just uh, teach today. Help me to uh, only say what you once said, not say what I ought not. And just uh, bless these, your words, to the hearts of all of us today. Help us, Father, as we think about this sobering passage from James. Help especially those of us who would teach to think about what he has to say here. And Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about words. Words. I mean, that is James' primary topic here, is it not? You don't really think he's talking about the tongue as the organ that is in our mouth, right? He talks about that. He uses that word. He mentions it in several different verses here, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. But he's not referring to this organ of speech that is in our mouth. He's actually referring to the act of communicating, to speech itself. We all know that, right? We see that literary technique all throughout Scripture. The Bible speaks about our heart, but it's not talking about the organ that pumps in our chest. It's talking about the center of our being, the center of our emotions. And we use the word the same way, don't we, when we say, oh, she broke my heart. Or, oh, he broke my heart. If we were to examine right then, I'm sure the heart would be beating just perfectly fine in the chest. That's not what we're talking about, the organ. Jesus said, he that has an ear, let him hear. He spoke about this organ of hearing, but what he was talking about was the act of hearing, the, the, not the organ itself. And so James here speaks about the tongue. If you have a, uh, a Bible in front of you, it probably has some kind of a heading over this section. Mine says the untamable Tongue. Another one I looked at had controlling the tongue. But we know that what he means there is words or speech, that which is produced by the tongue. So let's talk about words this morning. And then before we close out our study today, we're going to look at 
a little bit about word workers, those who work in words. And, and I realize that by looking at it in that order, we're going exactly the opposite order in which James presents these truths here. James begins with a very specific instruction in verse number one. He says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive stricter judgment. And then he goes on to explain why that is. He goes from the specific to the general. But I'm going to do it in the opposite order today, just because I choose to do so. We're going to go from the general to the specific, and I don't think we'll do any harm by doing that. So let's look, first of all, this morning at words. Words. Did you know that Irishman Kevin Sheenham of Limerick, Pennsylvania, in 1955 set a world record for non-stop talking? 133 hours. Did you know that Kevin's record has now been broken? by Tim Hardy of Coon Rapids, Minnesota, whose record in 1975 was 144 hours nonstop talking. Did you know that the women's nonstop talking record belongs to Mrs. Mary Davis, who in 1958 started talking in Buffalo, New York, and did not stop until she was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a total of 110 hours and 30 minutes. I'm not sure what I think about the fact that the woman's record is lower than the men's. I'm not sure what I think about that. Pardon? Twice as many words. No, is that what it is? Longer words, maybe. No, that wouldn't be good either. Did you know that according to statisticians, the average person spends at least one-fifth of his or her life talking? One-fifth. Ordinarily, in a single day, enough words are used to fill a 50-page book. <laughs> if the average... Uh, in, in, in one year's time, the average person's words would fill 132 books, each containing 400 pages. If the average lifespan of a person is 70 years, let's say, think about what that means. That means in your lifetime, you will have talked enough to fill 9,244 400-page books. That's a lot of words. And you know, if James is correct in his teaching here, and he is, because this is the Word of God, then very much of our verbal output would be better left unsaid. Amen. Think what he says here. He says, the tongue, our words, is a world of iniquity set on fire by hell. Verse number six. He says, the tongue, or our words, is impossible to tame. It is an unruly evil. It is full of deadly poison. Verse number eight. Do you find that to be true in your own life? Because I confess that I do. I confess it. I struggle with words, and I think if we're out of it, honest, most of us also struggle with words. James makes it a pretty universal issue in verse number two, doesn't he, when he said, all of us struggle. He goes on so far as to say that if we do have victory in this area, it's a mark of perfection, it's a mark of maturity, it's a mark of completion in your walk with God. I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. My family and I recently, recently had the opportunity to... Uh, we need to do something here. My family and I recently had the opportunity to uh, vacation in Montana. And while we were there, hold on. Is that better? Better test us. While we were in Montana, we asked around for, um, I'm all disabled now, I can't think. <laughs> while we were there, we asked around some of the locals, we said, where's a good place to go and see wildlife? We wanted to see all kinds of animals. We wanted to see elk and bison and all that kind of stuff. And somebody said, well, we ought to go down and drive through Ted Turner's ranch. 
And we said, Ted Turner's Ranch. He lets people come on there. And he said, well, there's a public road that goes right through the middle of it. You can't get off the road. Then you'd be on his property. But you can go down through there, and you can, uh, you, can, you can see these animals. And he has all kinds of bison on there. So sure enough, we drove. And we did see all kinds of bison. It was beautiful. But the whole time that we were doing it, I was seething. Because, you know, Ted Turner is famous for some things. Ted Turner is famous for uh, things he has said about Christianity. You know, Ted Turner is the one who said Christianity is a religion for losers. And he said a lot of things like that. He said one time something like, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here because I can't remember the exact quote, but he said something like, um, you know, they tell me that Jesus died for me. Well, I didn't ask him to do that. I didn't want him to do that. Ted Turner was just kind of, no. so I'm driving down through, I'm looking at all this beautiful land, I'm looking at all this beautiful wildlife, and there were buffalo all over the place, and we're taking pictures, but every once in a while there's this sign along where it says, Turner Enterprises, Turner Enterprises, and I'm thinking, boom, just make it. <laughs> yeah, we're working. Test, test, test. Amen. Except now I broke it. Okay, hold on a second here while we finish our technology, technology problems. So anyway, I was seething about Ted Turner. I'll get this story out eventually because of these things that he has said. But then as I was studying this, I came across an article from Time Magazine. Time Magazine has a, a column called 10 Questions. And in this column, readers are given the opportunity to interview celebrities and world leaders uh, all around the world. And somebody was, uh, was interviewing Ted Turner. And somebody wrote in and asked this question, quote, do you still think Christianity is a religion for lo losers? Referring to his much publicized rants about Christianity. And listen to what he said. He said, no. That was probably my most unfortunate comment. I apologized for it. I apologized for a lot of things that I've said, but I don't apologize nearly as much these days because I don't say as much, and I'm more careful about what I do say. I didn't mean to hurt anybody's feelings with that, but it did hurt people's feelings, and I'm sorry. Hmm. I like him better now. <laughs> but I wonder, have you ever done that? Have you ever said something that you later regretted? Said something that hurt somebody else? Said something that was just plain stupid? And after you said it, it was hanging right there in front of you, and you so desperately wanted to pull it back, but you couldn't. It was out there. Have you ever done that? I have more times than I care to admit. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin wrote a book called Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. He's lectured around this country about the power, the negative power of words in people's lives. And he often asks his audiences, and I, I find this interesting because this is very similar to what Trudy did this morning. He often asks these audiences, his audiences, if they can go 24 hours without saying any unkind words about or to another person. And invariably, his audiences, you know, some people will, will, will raise their hands and say, sure, I could do that. But most will not. Some will joke about it, but most will not. And then he'll say, you know, those who cannot answer yes must recognize that you have a serious problem. If you can't go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you're addicted to alcohol. If you can't go 24 hours without smoking a cigarette, you're addicted to nicotine. And similarly, if you can't go 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, then you have lost control over your tongue. Can you relate to that? I can. Husbands, wives, have you ever said something to your beloved spouse that you so desperately wish you could take back? Kids, teens, have you ever said something to a friend or to a family member or to a sister or to a brother? 
that you wished you'd never said. We need help in this area, don't we? And that's what James is telling us here. We need help in this area. Notice three major warnings James gives us about words. Number one, he says, the tongue, words, influence us and others. He illustrates that with two different things in verses three through five. The illustration of a horse and the illustration of a ship. Both of those are influenced, aren't they? They are controlled by something very, very small. A horse with a bit in its mouth, a ship. Regardless of how monstrous in size it might be, it is controlled, it is steered, it is influenced by an absurdly small rudder attached to it. And James says our words might seem insignificant, but they have an astonishing influence. And you only need to think of some of the examples we've seen down through history. All we need to think about is Adolf Hitler. That's enough right there, is it not? Of how that man with his oratory was able to whip people into an absolute frenzy. And so James warns us of the influence of the tongue. He describes the uncontrollability of the tongue, of our words. He does that in verses 6 through 8 by talking about picturing it as a fire. Comparing it to the taming of animals. A fire can quickly get out of control. Once out of control, bad things happen. James says that even though nearly every animal on earth has been tamed, I find that interesting. This was 2,000 years ago. Still, at that time, he could say that. But even so, our words are untamable, out of control. A fire is also unbelievably destructive, and so are our words. They can hurt, they can destroy. One person said, how many churches have been ruined by gossip and slander? How many individuals have had their reputations ruined because of such talk? People who would never think about setting fire to their neighbor's house can and do commit spiritual arson with their words. Another said, yes, indeed, the tongue is a fire, and it is set on fire of hell. Think about that. How often does our irresponsible speech come from hell? And more sobering, how often does our speech populate hell? How many are in hell today because they heard hellacious talk from professing Christians. So the uncontrollability of our words. And then finally, James describes the hypocrisy in our speech in verses 10 through 12. He pictures a stream that pours forth both salt water and fresh from the same opening. We know that's not even possible. Couldn't happen. He says it shouldn't happen with our speech. Our words demonstrate just such hypocrisy when we praise somebody to their face, and then when they turn their back, we chew on them behind their back. When we sit here and we worship God on the Lord's Day, and with that same mouth we uh, cuss out the driver in the car ahead of us on Monday as we're heading to work. Hypocrisy in our speech. And James puts it so succinctly. When he sums all this up, he puts it so succinctly in verse 10. He said, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. And all they ought not to be. The point is clear. A believer's tongue should not be an instrument of inconsistency. Small and influential, the tongue must be controlled. Satanic and infectious, the tongue must be corralled. Salty and inconsistent, the tongue must be cleansed. One man said the tongue can be a great blessing when controlled and energized by God, but a terrible, destructive force in the hands of the evil one. And by the way, you know what? I don't think James is just talking about the things, the verbal communication that we use, even though that's what maybe made sense in his day. Let's bring it up to 21st century America. You know what else it applies to? It applies to things like the keyboard on your computer. It applies to things like Facebook and Twitter and texting on your phone. All of those things fit into this same place. All forms of speech and communication are covered here. And James is not the only book in the Bible that mentions it. We could go uh, many, many, many different places. Proverbs is a good place to go. 
Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles, Proverbs 21 says. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Next chapter, James chapter 4, we're going to see him say, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Proverbs chapter 12, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs chapter 10, in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. Colossians chapter 4, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Titus chapter 1, Paul just puts it all in a line. He says, there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Oh, we need to pray about this, don't we? We need to talk to God about this. Because James says it's a problem for all of us, our words. We need to pray as the songwriter prayed, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. (coughs) Words. So James has some pretty pointed words about this, doesn't he? Words can be a real problem. But let's turn our attention now to his main point. This was the explanation of his main point. His main point is in verse number one when he talks about word Workers, word workers, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Let not many of you become teachers. You know, it seems like in the early church, everybody wanted to be a teacher. Not the problem in churches today. It's hard for us to find teachers nowadays. But uh, back then, it seems like everybody wanted to teach. If you remember in our series on 1 Corinthians, you remember that the Apostle Paul had to regulate their services because of the chaos that was ensuing and what was going on there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Everybody had something to say. And so he had to do something about it. James seems to be addressing a pretty similar issue. Apparently, everybody wanted to stand up and be a teacher. And his point is pretty clear. Not many of you should be teachers. Or stated another way, few should become teachers. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would that be? And and one of the reasons is because teachers are workers in words. And, And he goes on, we've already seen that words are a problem for all of us. And the fact that they're a problem for all of us, it's an area of difficulty for us all. That truth alone should give any who want to be a teacher pause. That's enough of a reason. Casting Crowns says in one of their songs, Be careful, little lips, what you say, for empty words and promises lead broken hearts astray. But James gives a far greater reason, a far more sobering reason here why few should be teachers. And that's in the last part of that verse. He says, Teachers will receive greater judgment. Now, we all face judgment for our words. We ought to memorize this verse. Every one of us should memorize Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36. I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. We're all going to give an account for our words. But what is true of us all, James says here, is especially true of teachers. And believe me, as I've studied this, I've tried to find a loophole in this. I really have. I've done every bit of, uh, of contortion of the scriptures I could think of to do to try to come up with some way out of this. But this, this means exactly what it says. It's exactly what it says. Those who teach are going to receive greater judgment. That word greater means stricter judgment. Knowledge, leadership bring greater responsibility. 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him much will be required and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask more. In Leviticus, in the Old Testament, there was a time when Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they were priests, they were leaders, they were the ones who were supposed to be standing in front of the people. They sinned. We read about it in Leviticus chapter 10. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And so Aaron held his peace. God was saying those who are standing in front have a higher responsibility. Ezekiel chapter 3, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Greater judgment. Hebrews chapter 13, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. I know and understand that one day I must stand and give an account for every word that I have said from this pulpit, everything that I have taught you. It's a sobering thought, believe me. One man said it like this, thinking about that. He said, it's an awesome thing to stand before eternity-bound people to unfold and explain the Word of God. I sometimes find myself shuddering as I think of the magnitude and seriousness of the task, and I shudder as I observe so many who go about the task with flippancy and lightness, conducting themselves as mere entertainers who are out to get a laugh. I also shudder when I hear about teachers who have such little regard for their task that they don't adequately prepare, or they use the time set apart for the teaching of the Word of God to discuss mere trivialities. I shudder when I hear teachers and preachers joke about things that are sacred, and I shudder when I hear a person set aside the clear teaching of the Bible so that he or she can be in line with current thinking. There are many, many ways in which we can misuse our tongues. Blasphemy, lying, gossip, profanity. But none could possibly be more serious than using them to misrepresent and distort the word of God. Oh, James says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we should receive a stricter judgment. And of course, future judgment is not all that's included in there. Some of that judgment takes place in this life. There is a cost to being a teacher. The seeming lack of results will wear on you. There is the unending attempts of the devil to discourage you. There is the constant comparison that others will put on between you and other teachers. All these things will work on you. You'll often feel like you're in the minority, like nobody is listening, like throwing in the towel. Every preacher that I've ever met can understand perfectly well the one pastor who was asked by one of his parishioners, Pastor, do you ever feel like quitting? Do you ever feel like throwing in the towel? And his response was, every single Monday morning. You feel like that. Elijah felt like that. He preached one day and then fell into a funk and complained to God and said, I'm the only one left. Nobody else is preaching. Just me. Of course, it wasn't true. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. 
We need to remember those times. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And of course, you're constantly going to be humbled by your listeners. All of us have had that. I love this one pastor. He stepped into the pulpit to preach, and he started his sermon. He said, I asked my wife to look over my notes and to mark out every single thing that was boring or dull. So in conclusion, <laughs> you'll always have your, those who will humble you. So James says, my brethren, not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So James says something in this passage that's for all of us, right? That's something about words. And he says something very specific here to those who would teach or desire to teach. Uh, it's a word of warning here to word workers. But let me wrap it up. But let me wrap it up this morning by pointing out what James did not say. Did you notice what James did not say here? There's all kinds of warnings here. There's something he didn't say. He did not say that because of the ease with which words can be misused, we should therefore hold our peace. He did not say that because of the greater judgment that will fall on those who teach, that nobody should teach. He said not many should, but some should. Some must. The Bible is clear. Some are gifted to teach. And those who have that spiritual gift should, must use it for the benefit of the church. God didn't give it for your own personal benefit in your study at home. He gave it for the use in the local church to help others. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. Ephesians chapter 4, he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Some are gifted to teach. Paul said to Timothy one time, he said, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on my hands. God has not given us a spirit of fear of power and of love and of a sound mind. I love the way the New Living puts that particular phrase. I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gifts God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline, so never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. If you are in that number, if you are in that number and God has given you the gift of teaching, then by all means teach! Teach! And teach for the glory of God. Some are gifted, some are appointed or called to teach. Paul said to Timothy, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And if you're appointed, if you're called, you need to be teaching. You say, how do I know I'm called, preacher? I'll give you the same answer everybody's ever given me about that. You'll know. You'll know. It doesn't seem very satisfying, but it works. If you're called, teach. Teach for the glory of God. And you know what? Some people are in positions that demand teaching whether they're any good at it or not. Whether they're gifted at it or not. Not all who teach have the gift of teaching. Not having the gift doesn't mean you ought not to teach. Elders are an example of that. We're coming to the end of the year. We're talking about eldership again. We're thinking about some for a, a moving them into roles of elders. One of the qualifications the Bible says is that elders have to be apt to teach, able to teach. That does not mean they have to be gifted. That does not mean they have to be good at it. They have to be able to. And it is something that is required in the job, whether they're gifted at it or not. Parents, parents, especially fathers, are supposed to be teachers. And there is no escaping it. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 4, You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Other 
translations say the instruction of the Lord. We're to be teachers of our children, whether we're good at it or not, whether we're gifted at it or not, we're supposed to do it. And all of us are to be soul winners, aren't we? All of us are to be witnesses. You shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's all of us. Matthew chapter 28 puts it like this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so there is an aspect of teaching that we all should do. And we should do it for the glory of God. So I don't think James is saying here that nobody should teach. I don't think he's warning us about that at all. I think what he's saying is that those who do should understand the seriousness of what they do. Not all should. Some should. Some must teach. One man said, our plea is not for perfect people to go about the work of teaching. It is rather for imperfect people to go about the work in a serious and diligent way, praying as they do so that the Lord will be pleased to use them in their weakness. Teach. Teach. But see your weakness and rely on God. Paul said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and of us. Teach. But do so trusting, not in your own self, not in your own wisdom, but always and only on God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Our sufficiency is from Teaching is vital. Teachers are vital. We are bombarded on all sides by false teaching. We need those who will stand and say, I will teach the truth. Who will stand and do that? Who will, as James' brother Jude said, contend for the faith? We need that. Somebody recently sent me an email and something, or a tweet or something, and in there was a link to the trailer for the upcoming movie about Noah. I don't know if any of you have noticed that or not, but there's a movie coming out about Noah. Now, who knows what Hollywood's going to do with that? We're talking about the same people who turned the angels in, uh, in Sodom into ninja warriors. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. So who knows what they're going to do? But the trailer looks at least mildly interesting. And there was one particular scene in the trailer that really spoke to my heart. It was very close to when the flood was about to take place, apparently, and the ark was mostly built, and Noah and his family were working on it there, and this raging army of men come up, and they want access to the ark. And Noah stands there and says, no, you can't come in here. And this one wicked leader of this group says to him, I'm standing here. I'm standing here with men at my back, and you're standing here alone, and you tell me I can't come in. And Noah just looked at him and said, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Not all should be. Some should be. Some must be. You need to understand the seriousness of it and the danger of it and the responsibility of it. You need to seek his help in this awesome responsibility. But then you need to teach. And you need to teach for the glory of God. And you need to know that he will help you. And that you are not alone.